Welcome to Pondering AI. My name is Kimberly Nevela, and I'm a strategic advisor at SAS. In this season, I'm so pleased to be joined by a diverse group of thinkers and doers to explore how we can all create meaningful human experiences and make mindful decisions in the age of AI. In this episode, we welcome Marisa Chop. Marisa is a human AI interaction researcher at Skip AG and the chief research officer at Women in AI and PO. She is also co-chair of IEEE's Agency and Trust in AI Systems Committee. That's a bit of a mouthful. Marisa looks at AI through a psychological lens, and she joins us today to discuss our evolving relationship with AI systems. Thank you for being here, Marisa. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to uh, our discussions. Yeah, this is going to be fascinating. So tell us, how does one become a human AI interaction researcher? That's such a good question. And if you would have asked me this uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said, what are you talking (laughs) about? I am here. I'm a cosmetician. I am painting people's fingernails. So uh, (laughs) I do have a bit of a weird, uh, well, CV, so to speak. But um, I must say that I have always been extremely interested in people and understanding people and, well, uh, to be more optimistic how to help people and whether whether this is by painting nails or uh, in the age of technology, I think I totally found my field here. So over the course of my studies, uh, of course, (laughs) um, (laughs) at one point I uh, I started to be absolutely fascinated by, by technology, not so much by technology per se, but how people interact with technology and how Technology changes our our minds, our behavior, our interactions with other people, and it fascinates me. It also sometimes scares me, and often it also excites me. So I think it's, for me, just a very great place and a very great setup at the moment. And you are a psychologist, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So I've studied, um, basically, I was focusing on consumer behavior and on organizational behavior, so how people behave in uh, organizational contexts or when they look at products and stuff like that. And uh, and now at the moment with uh, with the institution in Germany, I am looking more um, into uh, relationship patterns. So also very, uh, also focusing on the human and how they interact with technology. And for those of you not already following Marisa on LinkedIn or Twitter, you really, really should. I will tell you, it's one of the most fascinating curated feeds <laughs> I, I look at, and it's, it's become one of my favorites, uh, hands down. Uh, lots of Thank challenging so much. <laughs> and interesting <laughs> topics. They're um, all very personal topics I post. So it's, you know, it's, it is carefully curated, but it's really just things that are very, very important to me. Excellent. So you talk a lot about, and, and I know, research and speak about the topic of things like trust and trust in AI. And certainly today, a lot of tech companies, a lot of media, we're seeing a lot of articles that tout the importance of developing AI systems that people can trust. And this concept of trust is is a curious thing. If you could start us off by helping us understand what does it mean to trust someone, uh, another person, and then maybe we can extend that to if that same definition really applies to an inanimate system such as AI. 
Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's a brilliant question. And uh, yeah, as you already mentioned, my major passion is trust and investigating this weird feeling everybody knows, kind of everybody, every human being, you know, can say, I trust this, that, or him, her, whatsoever. But we don't really know how to define it and what it really incorporates, right? I mean, it's something we experience, but it's one of the hardest things to explain. So, um, I, there, of course, there are a myriad of theories on interpersonal trust. So, how do humans trust each other and what does that mean? But uh, to, to keep it simple, I think, um, and also to relate it to human-machine trust later on, I want to go to one theory where you basically, where the theory of trusting someone, well, to trust someone incorporates that someone is willing uh, to to show, to be vulnerable towards another mm. person. So if I trust you, I it's it's a gift, right? It's a gift because I open myself to you. I show you my vulnerabilities because if I trust you with something, you have the opportunity to hurt me. But you also have the opportunity to take this gift and, and, and grant it and, and, and keep it, right? And basically that the study of Trusting some someone is a lot is is rooted in, in in studying trustworthiness. And if we look at humans, there are these three pillars that have been investigated a lot, which is integrity, benevolence, and um, abilities. So these these three three pillars are you know what we evaluate basically sometimes more more intuitively, sometimes more really thinking about it. When we say we trust somebody, we think about Okay, what can this person actually do? Is this person benevolent? And uh, is that person integral? So these are the things we kind of ask ourselves when we evaluate and think about or feel if we trust somebody. So when we think about, quote unquote, trusting or putting our trust in something like an AI-enabled system, are these characteristics that we are trying to design into the system or are we really talking about trusting the system itself? Or in other words, should we be talking about trusting AI systems or trusting the people who design and deploy them? <laughs> well, that's uh, <laughs> that's the question we all try to answer at the moment. Um, so obviously I don't have answers, but I do have some hints and some ideas or where we are at. So maybe to, to get back to what uh, I've just mentioned. So how is trust in a technological system different than humans? So actually, a lot of studies have come to, to, to a place where, okay, actually, it's pretty similar. So when we talk about trustworthiness of a machine, we also talk about these uh, meta-analysis have found that three dimensions are relevant, which are performance. What can the system do? Process. How does the system do it? And purpose, why does it do it? And these are actually pretty similar to the three dimensions I mentioned with uh, when we talked about interpersonal trust. So um, it is similar, but it is also different, right? So there are, you can see the similarities, but of course they're not, you cannot take them one on uh, one to one. And also specifically in the human machine context, there are the similarities, for example, you there's a situation that is characterized by uncertainty. You don't really know how these machines are making the decisions and you don't really know what's happened. You cannot really explain why these and these or these things happened. And uh, on the other hand, you can also not, you don't really know what the companies are after, right? So, um, but I think the most important things I want, thing I want to mention here is that 
you always, if we talk, if we talk about trust in machines or trust in AI, we always need to talk about the goal, the end goal, the kind of the target. So for example, if I say I trust Amazon to deliver this prospect within a week, I do. But do I trust Amazon to handle my data ethically? Hmm. Maybe not so much, right? So it's the same entity, but there are two different outcomes. So we want to always look at what kind of goal are we talking about? We're not just talking about AI, right? Uh, so that's a very general question that is actually, or in one article I wrote, it's, it's the wrong question. The question, do you trust AI, is actually a wrong question because you want to ask, do you trust AI to do what, to achieve what? You know, you always want to put it in context. So that's important. And the other thing you mentioned is, you know, who is the actual, you know, who's the trustee? Who is, who is, I am the trust for, right? I'm the one giving my trust away. And we don't really understand the whole framework of trust. Who are all the actors? And it's very, very complicated. And the more we know about it, the more complicated it gets, unfortunately. So how aware are people of AI, the system, as a trustee, separate from the company or developer providing the AI-enabled product or service? So in one of our uh, studies, for example, we did find out that people really think about whether is it the AI as an artifact we put the trust in or is it the company behind it? We found uh, significant differences in the trust they place in the artifact and the trust they place in the provider. So this kind of shows that they that users are making distinctions. So we have to go further than that, but this is a kind of an it gives us a direction. Okay, actually, users are smarter than we think. Okay, <laughs> so let's start here. And um, in in one of our qualitative studies, we also found a lot of people telling us that you know they stated things like it's not the AI we don't trust; it's really the people behind it. Mm-hmm. So they do. So it seems like, you know, there is still this interpersonal trust concept flying around somewhere that they, you know, put their pl- place, their trust to the people and maybe rely on the machines that they trust, that they put their trust in. So it, it makes sense that you could distinguish trust and reliance in, in, mm-hmm. in if you want to better understand the, all these kinds of frameworks. Interesting. So is there also a difference or a bridge we need to make between the concept of like trust and trustworthiness, or is that just splitting hairs? Oh, that's a huge difference. And I I think I point this out in basically every talk I give. So when we talk about trust, we're talking about a human attitude. We're talking about something that's happening through emotional and cognitive um, observations and stuff like that. So we're evaluating things, and this is how our attitude is formed. When we talk about trustworthiness, we are talking about the properties of machines. So trustworthiness, is, especially in this human-machine context, is a very technical term. And it's actually something, you know, where I say, if you as a company stop talking about trust, just talk about trustworthiness because this is what you can control best. This is what you're best at. You can think about, okay, what do I have to do to be trustworthy? If companies focus on trust, 
then we're pretty close to manipulating people because trust is an attitude, right? And we want to make sure that we're not doing this because we want to manipulate people. We want to manipulate their levels of trust. But what we can do, what we can control is how can we as a company be trustworthy? And there are a lot of studies, a lot of indicators that explain us how can we as a company can be trustworthy. Are there some key characteristics of what makes a company and their systems trustworthy? Well, um, as I already mentioned, I think as a start, it's always good to start with the model by Lee and C because it's kind of easy to grasp at the beginning where you focus on the performance. What is the system capable of? And if you are able to communicate this without any hype and without overblowing expectations, then this is what you should do to be trustworthy. Then the second pillar was process. Mm. And this incorporates, you know, how does the system make a decision? And and this incorporates lots of co complicated terms such as explainability, transparency. How do we handle um, consumer data and stuff like that? And, you know, this this is that pillar. And on the third part is why are we, is, are we really doing what we want to do, like selling X, Y, Z? Or are we also gathering data to, I don't know, teach other algorithms something else and make profiling and all these kinds of things? So what are we actually really doing with this uh, product? And within these three um, pillars, so to speak, you can also just grab a guideline, for instance, the EU guidelines for trustworthy AI, and then you can see how they fit into this framework as well when we talk about um, transparency, compliance, security, um, data governance, and all these kinds of things. So you can take one of these guidelines, they would perf fit perfectly, you know, they're volunteer, you can just use them. And on the on a, on a final note, you can also look and find uh, companies or more and more companies who do labeling, who do certifications, who do audits to do standards uh, improvements and stuff like that, that help you to at least adhere to the most important govern, uh, governance guidelines. And uh, last but not least, at one point, this will, you know, lead into laws. You must be lawful at one point. And um, now you're doing all this, the, the preparation for that. If you're already adhering to the guidelines of trustworthiness to when the law comes, the AI Act, specifically in Europe, then, you know, if you're already there, if you're already adhering to these standards, then you're best equipped to not uh, having an illegal product or any illegal practices on board. How important is it also that we become more mindful about the language we're using, particularly when we are communicating, whether it's marketing or just discussing and educating and writing about AI capabilities. There is a lot of, I would, maybe it's not inflammatory and maybe not even intentional, but I think misleading language, you know, things that will say, you know, we have an AI system that thinks you think this, or we have an AI system that knows when you are depressed. Uh, there was a recent article from LinkedIn that you had tagged that said, you know, algorithmic integrity cannot be evaluated without understanding the algorithm's thinking. Mm -hmm. So how does our tendency to want to for lack of a better word, anthropomorphize some of how these systems work so that people understand it, helping us and hurting us overall. Mm, yeah. 
That's a crucial and very, very uh, complex topic because it's so nuanced that it's really, you know, it's so hard to define benchmarks. So maybe to start off with the most obvious, I call it the Muskian marketing strategies. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> he won't like that, but no, it's okay. Um, so anytime, you know, anytime you just absolutely overblow the capabilities of a system and, you know, give expectations that are just unrealistic and this is just really, really hurting, you know, the whole field, but also, of course, the end user. I mean, talking about, for instance, you know, naming your um, driving assistance autopilot whilst you still have to put your hands on the wheel. So there's nothing such thing as an autopilot, but this flows into on all other industries as well. Um, but you must be aware of any kind of Musk and Marcus strategies and flag them. You can even, you know, think about how to make them illegal. But to go a little bit more into uh, the nuances of anthropomorphizing language, um, this is one of my favorite topics, you know, because on the one hand, anthropomorphism is good because it helps hmm. us lay people to understand things better. And um, it started with, you know, in weather predictions where we, you know, gave storms names and, you know, uh, you know, talking about, OK, listen, storm Katrina is coming and it's dangerous and it will destroy us. And, you know, so it started with these kind of things, but it helps us, you know, learning about the, uh, the accuracy and the, the phenomenon very instinctively fast. And, you know, you grasp it right away and. When you use anthropomorphized language, you understand things way faster, especially if you are, um, you know, if you don't know what we're talking about. For instance, talking about cyber attacks, right? The virus. Everybody knows how a virus works, but I can guarantee you that nobody knows how a computer virus works. But you kind of get how it works just because you know how a virus works. You know there's something bad, you get infected and it kind of creeps around. Maybe you don't even know you have it and all these kinds of things. So it's extremely helpful to explain things. On the other hand, there are also very negative effects that come with anthropomorphized language, especially if we say the AI thing. Okay, let's start with the AI. There's no such thing <laughs> as the AI. Okay? Right? It's, it's not an entity. It's not like <laughs> the thing, you know, uh, moving anything. It's an algorithm or it's a system or it's something, it's an artifact programmed by humans, right? So there's no such thing as the AI or NAI. Mm -hmm. But okay. <laughs> and on the other hand, and the AI does not think. It does not even learn, right? It doesn't right. do these things that humans do. If It doesn't learn the way humans do, like machine learning. It, it recognizes patterns and it makes statistical associations and then identifies outputs uh, based on these patterns. But it doesn't learn the way we do, like, right? It doesn't understand context, et cetera, et cetera. And the danger in this is that people have absolutely over- blown expectations of the performance and um, which leads to, you know, misuses of AI to, you know, also wrong business models, even to AI winters that, you know, destroy the whole field. I mean, so, yeah, I don't have an answer to that, <laughs> to be honest, but we have to be extremely, extremely cautious how and where we anthropomorphize. And it's, 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 we really have to 
nail this down where and when and how and um, how we, how this is best. I, I don't have an answer to this, unfortunately, just that there are good ways and bad ways. And uh, it, would it be fair to say also that as we're, whether we're promoting products or I'm writing articles or that we should also be thinking carefully about what our intention is. Because again, as you said, there's there's nothing wrong with helping people contextualize and understand things in a really readily common context. Uh, on the other hand, if we're using that to as a tactic, I suppose, to lower resistance or lower skepticism uh, or try to make it seem as if, and, and I worry more about this, not so much for folks in the field, but for lay people. You used the Amazon example earlier, which says, yeah, I trust them to deliver a package in a week. However, I don't trust them to use my data ethically. I think the public is more and more educated these days, but not everyone even thinks about that or understands that there is a trade-off between you know, to trust them to get your package there, there may be trade-offs you're making that you don't even know about in terms of your data security and privacy. So how do we more broadly address this issue and, and try to hedge against general overconfidence in systems that occur from all of these different influences? Again, you're asking a tough question here. Uh, it's not, uh, it's, I mean, we just, you know, literally just three weeks ago at uh, the university in Switzerland, we had a track on overtrust and how to mitigate overtrust in AI and automated technologies. So as we're really simply just on it, trying to better understand the field and um, to trying to co-develop in a participative approach, like in integrating stakeholders, um, we are really in a development stage. So at the moment, there are strategies you have to apply from the, the technological side, how to design for calibrated trust. So to use a, a technical term here, um, this is the calibrated trust is when we talk about that, we talk about trust that corresponds with the level of performance of a system. And you can see this from two sides. The one side is how do you develop a product to foster calibrated trust or to calibrate trust? So how do you communicate the performance? How, what kind of algorithms do you use? What kind of transparency level do you use? How do you implement explainability? Is it and, and through what ways, right? We don't know. Like, uh, do, does, a, does a computer explain itself and how does that affect uh, the user and so on. We don't, we don't have all the evidence here, the scientific evidence. So that's the one thing. And on the other side, from the people's, from the humanity side, you want to think about, okay, what do we have to do to, to calibrate the, our trust ourselves? Like what, how, how can we exercise meaningful agency? And of course, there are a lot of approaches in education and knowledge and also from, from the legal side, I mean, if, if I know that um, the European Union is working hard to, to build laws governing AI, there must be something going on, right? So, you know, there are all these cues that uh, we as users are now soaking in, which will eventually help to calibrate this level of trust. And on the other hand, however, there are also these very, very strong forces that um, prevent us from calibrating our trust. Uh, you know, 
for example, convenience, uh, group pressure, um, having no other option, having not the resources to monitor. You know, my friend uses WhatsApp, so I use it as well because I don't want to be left out. There's no other option. Then people also resign. They're like, I don't even know what this all means. I'm just going to click OK and, you know, take my data at law. As long as I can share my pictures, I'm fine. You know, and, you know, this whole fear of missing out and all these nudging, um, you know, people from design perspectives and so on. You know, these are things that even if we're trying the best that we can to be as thoughtful about our decisions, there are mechanisms that influence our behavior in ways that we almost can't control. And this is extremely dangerous. Yeah, nudging's an interesting phenomenon. And again, another article I, I keyed into through uh, some of the feeds that you put in was talking about the ability of an AI to draw your face from hearing your voice. And yeah. it was fascinating because I instinctively said, you know, that's BS. Before I even really looked at it, I started to read it before I looked at the explicit pictures. And when I looked at the pictures, I thought those don't look at all alike. I mean, the woman's female, she's got dark hair and looks maybe a little bit Latinx. I didn't think there was even a really a passing resemblance. But the title of the article was, you know, draws your face with surprising accuracy or whatever that was. I started to think about, again, the psychology, which is as you said, sort of prompting someone to see what you want them to see, which is if I exactly. just read, read the article line and maybe didn't have the background, when I looked at those comparative pictures, I wonder if I might have seen more of a likeness than I you know, did. And then I worried about, do other people see more of a likeness because they're you know, influenced to do so or not? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there will be a myriad of people who think, wow, that's amazing. I want to work in this field. I mean, that's great. I mean, you know, the tech people, they get so excited about these things. They also, they don't even mean it. Like, they're like, wow, I can, I can build something really cool and it kind of works. It gives me some crazy <laughs> outputs. And, you know, they're super excited about these things. So I, I totally um, get, uh, you know, I kind of get all the sides from working in academia as well as in a cybersecurity company. I get, I kind of get all the, the you know, all, we, all kinds of weird inputs and fun things. And I get to know all these interesting different characters and stereotypes <laughs> myself yeah. that I have to, you know, think about. So um, definitely. And I think to get back to this article and, you know, of course, I also have an agenda when I post this kind of article. I know people <laughs> only read this headline and then I'm thinking about, OK, what do I say about this article that kind of fits my agenda? Right. Mm -hmm. Because I'm also out there to do, you know, to make business. I'm, I'm also a businesswoman. Right. And I think. I just wanted to say everybody has an agenda, right? And the other thing I kind of, and that's kind of maybe out of context, but to just kind of close this topic also is my friend who's a great statistician. And uh, she said, you know, she gave a lot of great inputs as well. You know, think about, okay, listen, you have no idea how many tests with what kind of people they've yeah. done. And maybe they're just showing those 10 people with the great output and you don't even know what, you know, the population of the sample even looked like, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so she also has her agenda because she's doing consulting on <laughs> statistics, right? So, <laughs> um, and I'm, you know, so I'm just saying, you know, we all have our hypotheses, our agendas in our head, and this is how we conceive the world. This is how we communicate to the world. And 
And I think this is something we all have to acknowledge and also try, you know, not to put too much value on and try to, you know, have a meta perspective. Say, okay, why is this person posting this? And how could we see this differently? And how can we add another perspective to this? That's such a great point. It circles back to the conversations we've certainly been having about diversity and non-exclusion and, and getting all of those different viewpoints. Now, I'd like to take a slight turn. I know another area of research that's fairly early or emerging is really looking specifically at this idea of human and AI relationships or how people develop relationships to their devices. And there's two areas I, I'm interested in your thoughts and in what you're seeing. One is I will tell you, and again, this putting my own personal biases out there, I am highly turned off, I think, about when I see a lot of components, uh, whether it's a humanoid-looking model or a digital assistant that purports to be the perfect wife or to replace the need for elder care. And I, I worry about us trying to use these systems to not enable human connection, but to, in fact, replace them or augment it, where today maybe we don't have the the social you know, connectivity and nets that we need. So I'm interested in, in that. And this idea that people really form an attachment to their device or to their AI assistant is intriguing to me. Can you talk a little bit about the research that you're doing and some of these phenomena and what we may be looking into as, as we move forward here? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, great listening to you because I think I'm the opposite. I'm totally fascinated by talking to machines. I love lo watching robots and I, I get I get very enthusiastic uh, when I mm. see robots and uh, when I talk to my Google Assistant and so on. So that's, um, you know, I, it's so great to see all these different kind of receptions. <laughs> and um, so when I began working in the field, I really was super focused on trust and performance and looking at how these uh, AI um, assistants, I'm, I'm focusing on conversational AI with my research, how they are perceived, how they're trusted and what kind of, you know, how smart are they and how does it affect uh, trust? Because before I started my research, I was doing something differently. I was working in a university for digitalization of blah, blah, blah. So it was also for me new working with digital systems. So and at one point of my research, I think it was like two or three years into my trust research, I turned off my Alexa. But before that, I said goodbye. And that was the point where like, whoa, what the heck? Wait a minute. What's <laughs> happening there? <laughs> and this is the point where I said, okay, wait, something's going on with me. And, you know, and this is often or sometimes, or at least for me, is how, you know, I think, okay. I want to understand this. I want to delve deeper and I want to explain mm -hmm. this and I want to see how other people perceive this. And this is um, where our, or where we started doing research on relational patterns with AI, conversational AI. And we wanted to find out, do people um, develop relationships specifically with conversational AI like Alexa and Siri or like they do with humans? And it's basically the same approach as, as with trust, Right. We have the interpersonal trust, the human-to-human -human trust theories, and we have translated them or repurposed them to human-machine trust, right? And we're basically taking the same approach. So we're looking at interpersonal relationship theories and repurposing them for human-machine relationships. So the same things in, the, in a different context. And before maybe I delve deeper into, you know, the research, I think... Um, 
What triggers me most is, of course, you know, finding out what is, you know, what can we find out from a scientific point of view. But what triggers me and what keeps me awake at night are the articles I read about people, you know, forming relationships, not so much with Alexa, but with other uh, AI companions uh, or with the Microsoft chatbot Xiao Ice in Asia where they get so attached to this chatbot that they feel bad or even depressed when they had to abandon this kind of relationship. And there's also emergent research that shows that people report sadness, that they report addiction towards interacting with this 24-7 available companion, fake person, however you want to name it, because they build this attachment and they're somehow unable to release that. And I'm pretty sure, although I don't have evidence for that, and this will spill over to human interactions. I'm so sure about that, that this will interfere with and influence how we also interact with each other. And I think the effect will be rather negative than positive. Interesting. So is this, a, this a, is this a primary area of focus for you and, and your team moving forward then? No, that's my hobby. <laughs> that's my hobby? <laughs> you have the most interesting primary job and hobby. I love it. <laughs> and my actual area may re- is really very theoretical, actually. So um, what we're, we're really looking at these interpersonal models and we want to understand how, how, how do people perceive the relationships with conversational AI And in our first study, um, we had some really interesting results, actually, where, you know, um, people... Okay, maybe let me ask you a question. So, um, (laughs) you know know Alexa, right? Or you know Siri or Google Mm -hmm. Assistant. Let's imagine you have three different types you could have a relationship, like you can perceive relationship with. It's more like the servant relationship, like you have a digital assistant, I have an order, you have a servant. This is one kind of type. The other type is more like, you know, an exchange partner on a rational basis, where like like an employer or like, you know, I give you something, you give me something in return, but we're very equivalent, you know, in our, you know, human level. And we just negotiate uh, on the things we want. Like I do, I give that to you, you give me money back and so on. That's the second type. The third type of relationship would be friend-like, peer-like, you're my friend, I do everything for you, we're kind of, you know, we're the same kind of person, we share visions, morals, goals, and so on. How, what would you guess, what would be your best guess, how most people perceive the relationship with Alexa, for instance? Gosh, I, maybe I'm a cynic, but I'd be concerned that most people would say, number one, and I would be horrified if the majority had actually said three, mm-hmm. which was that sort of friend relationship. So I'm going to say that maybe it was three. But yeah, interesting. Was it three? Did they think of it as a friend? No, it wasn't. No. So actually, the majority of people um, uh, identified or characterized the relationship as a servant, master-servant relationship. A small type of, uh, a very small uh, majority chose or perceive their relationship as with the peer-like companion type of uh, thing. Interesting. Which is also kind of weird because a lot of research and, you know, they're also working, you know, Google Assistant, they're working hard towards developing their assistant as a friend, as a peer, as somebody's always there. They're putting in emojis and all these things. But the most exciting thing we found is that actually greatest part so actually was the type two part 
It was the rational interaction, but it was, you know, there was some equivalence attributed. There was some, you know, you're not, we're not the master servant type. It was really this kind of exchange part. So, and this was also, you know, the, um, the relationship pattern that was the one with the most significant um, predictions and how people perceive the other variables such as trust, such as warmth, competence, performance. Interesting. So we believe in our first study that this kind of servant-master relationship is the default relationship. And the other things, they kind of develop through the way. We don't know yet how, but um, so there are people, you know, where we have kind of all these kind of relationships we perceive within our interactions. And this is exciting because we always, we have a tendency to categorize the they're either the servant or either the friend. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's very exciting because we could kind of show or find that, you know, there are multiple ways of conceiving or perceiving these digital systems and to interact with them in, in various contexts, maybe. And maybe this will also change over time. And this will be our next study. So we want to find out how will this change over time? You know, will we start with more the you know, like I did, more with the rational mm -hmm. uh, servant master type. And at one point I'm saying goodbye, like, wow, <laughs> you know, does that change over time? Maybe is that, does that have something to do with it or any, you know, we don't know it, but that will be the foci of our next study. Oh, that, this is absolutely, it's a fascinating conversation. And I think it will be fascinating to see what those results are. I will say that it, it leaves me with increased uh, optimism for the future that although I don't think this is positive that today the foci is the slave master relationship years ago I saw a kid bullying Alexa and I thought oh this is this is not going well and really testing out what was the worst sort of insults and questions they could ask and I thought mm. mm -hmm. but there's a lot of optimism in, based on what you've said about our ability to uh, perhaps uh, evolve beyond some of that. So we'll definitely have to keep an eye and hopefully have you come back and talk about it. I think this area is incredibly interesting. And for me, I find it just personally challenging as well. So I, you know, love to just kind of keep in that. Definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. It's challenging and exciting and sometimes also <laughs> scaring, but you know, uh, all in all, I'm also, I'm, I would say I'm a skeptical optimist. I'm, I really, overall, I believe we are definitely going into the right direction. We just have to get these, you know, have to fine tune and work on all these details hard and um, all in all, I'm very positive that we're going to get through this and we're going to, we're going to do a good job. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, that is amazing. Thank you so much. And as I said to everyone listening, if you're not already following Marisa, you absolutely should be. It's a very varied and stimulating set of content that you do curate. So thank you so much and for joining us today. Thank you so much, Kimberly. It was a real pleasure. All right. So next up, we're going to have Dr. Dorothea Bauer, and she's going to join us to discuss how do we strike a balance between a risk and a rights-based approach to AI ethics. Subscribe now to Pondering AI so you don't miss it. <laughs>